Saying that he was elected to represent Pittsburgh, not Paris, President Trump announced in June that the U.S. would withdraw from the Paris Climate Agreement, meaning that the world's second largest polluter officially will no longer participate in efforts to combat climate change. But today on KM In Depth, we'll find out that Donald Trump doesn't speak for everyone. I'm Chuck Rogers. And I'm Lindsay Battle. Welcome to KHUM In Depth. Here in California, Governor Jerry Brown pledges the Golden State will stay the course, as he puts it, with goals of 50% renewable energy by 2030, strict auto emission standards, and more. Brown says California is all in on decarbonizing our economy. This is a temporary deviation from the norm, the world norm, and it will be corrected. How soon? I don't know. I can't say that today, but I'm going to do everything I can to correct it. And in the meantime, uh, we're not treading water. We're on the field of battle and we're going to do everything we can to win the minds and hearts of the people of California, of America, of the world. This is not some uh, extra little political game or one issue among many. This is an existential threat to the long-term future of of humanity. Uh, This is not a game. Uh, Millions of people will die if we don't handle uh, climate change in the right way. We have to make the investments. We have to make the change of, of course in the way the economy and the world lives and does things. And California is prepared to do that. And I would say that Trump is going to act as the null hypothesis. He's demonstrating that climate denial has no integrity and no future. And the opposite, climate activism is is the order of the day. And you will see in the coming days and months and uh, hopefully in the coming years that we really rise to the occasion and do what is needed to keep humanity uh, on a sustainable and harmonious path with nature. In fact, Governor Brown is already busy on this. He's forming a coalition of other U.S. states plus cities and countries and businesses from all over the world to continue work on building a sustainable climate friendly future and in fact he's hoping for a climate summit here in california next year the coalition he's formed is called we are still in to get some insight on what all this means for the state of california and what we're actually doing to combat climate change we spoke with climate vulnerability assessment expert and lecturer up at hsu michael Furness. Ultimately, uh, a price on carbon uh, in the form of a tax uh, or various kinds of cap-and-trade mechanisms that there are uh, is ideal. All the economists that look at this say this is what you need to do. You need to have a price on carbon. In fact, we have a cap-and-trade system in California. It's one of the few in the world that is up and running and, and basically working. So that does put a price on carbon. And uh, there's this... Uh, some moral indignation about it that it gives people the ability to pay for going over their cap but that's just a practical solution and uh, the system uh, strongly incentivizes uh, uh, emitters to reduce their emissions because they have to pay to make the emissions or if they have very low emissions they get paid for how much they're under the cap so um, Maybe a tax is a better solution, or maybe cap-and-trade is a good deal, but they both act to put a price on carbon, and that's what needs to happen. And it's happening in California. 
and everyone's watching California. The whole world is watching California, as they always do. Maybe we don't notice what a bellwether we are or the, what a leader California is, but California is a leader in climate mitigation, uh, and it's, it's really happening. Uh, and we have AB 32 that um, creates this cap-and-trade system, and with uh, um, sort of the um, hostile uh, negligence of the federal government at this time, uh, people are really looking to California and the states to, to provide a solution, and, and California is stepping right up to do that. You know, if you spin the clock back 10 years, nobody thought that we'd have practical electric cars by now, but here they are. How about that? And so, and say, well, well, solar isn't feasible, or wind isn't feasible, or electric cars aren't feasible. Like, turns out they are. You know, we're good at solving problems, engineering problems. And so, um, this also needs to be paired with uh, renewable sources of energy when you plug the car in, right. of course. If you're getting your electricity from coal, then the electric car's not uh, really doing you much good. But having electric cars and then pairing that with clean sources of energy you know that's happening much quicker than anybody thought and then encouragement from the government in forms of tax incentives or regulatory controls is always an important uh, way to kind of move things uh, even faster so the redwood coast energy authority i don't know if you're am, most yeah. likely familiar with this new program yeah. they put out called community choice energy mm -hmm. where they are feeding the PG&E grid with mm -hmm. renewable energy sources and customers have the option to opt up and purchase only mm -hmm. renewable energy via the grid that's already bringing energy to their mm -hmm. house. How much of a solution is something like that? Is that a big deal? It's a really big deal that we can do this now, and I would urge everybody to opt up. I've done it. It's going to increase your bill about 5%. That's a great way to contribute, and it puts more money into that fund to encourage clean energy sources. What does renewable energy in Humboldt look like? Well, the, the best renewable energy is basically solar and wind, um, although they have their impacts. Tidal power looks promising, uh, but it takes a lot of capital, and uh, there's a lot of risk to it because we haven't done it before. But there's good expertise on that here, and we certainly have the tides in the ocean. Um, we have biomass power where we use wood uh, waste. Uh, yeah, how or do you feel? How do you feel about the the biomass power? I know that when mm -hmm. the RCEA was pushing through this community choice energy program, that that mm -hmm. was something that many citizens were concerned about burning mm -hmm. wood as not necessarily being clean energy. Right. Well, we have three existing plants. At least one or two of them are idle. But you know, we have traditionally dealt with. Uh, forest products residues by burning them. You know, there used to be the TP burners all over, or you burn them in the woods, or you, you do something with those residues. Um, and to uh, burn those for power seems to make sense when we're at this point where we're trying to get away from fossil fuels. Here in Humboldt, in some ways, we're surrounded by the effects of climate change. Coastally, sea level rise is a real issue. It is a big issue. In fact, in researching this show, we also found out that the land underneath Humboldt Bay is sinking at the same time that the sea level is rising. And that leads to lots of questions about the local waterfront and Highway 101 between Arcata and Eureka, plus all of the infrastructure near the bay. 
Humboldt Baykeeper is one of the organizations that has made all this a priority and has been involved in searching for solutions. Here's their director, Jennifer Colt. It's actually really important because a lot of the state agencies' documents say there's something wrong with the gauge, the tide gauge at the North Spit on Humboldt Bay, so we're just going to throw that out because we don't understand why it's so different. So local geologists took a look at that and did a bunch of studies that found, well, it's not that there's something wrong with it, it's like the ground is sinking. And of course, there's nothing we can do about that. Nope. (laughs) So given that, what are the likely impacts locally of sea level rise? Well, some of the major impacts that Humboldt Baykeeper is concerned about is the impacts to infrastructure like wastewater treatment plants, which are all you know, by their very nature, low-lying and right on the coast. Um, The sewer and water and natural gas transmission lines are also in really low-lying areas, and roads and um, power lines, fiber optic cables, that sort of thing. We're also concerned about coastal habitats like salt marsh that are basically going to get squeezed in between the rising waters and the, the hardened shoreline like the dikes and levees. Um, if we don't plan for, you know, where are we going to have salt marshes in the future? And then something else that Humble Baykeeper's done quite a bit of work on is looking at low-lying contaminated sites um, around Humboldt Bay, uh, much of which are um, former lumber mills that are contaminated with dioxins that were left from the use of wood preservatives in the lumber mills. As the bay rises, Um, Not only could it flood those areas, but it also is going to be coming up through the groundwater um, and potentially mobilizing those contaminants. Let me ask you about uh, also residences and businesses that are along the coastline. I'm thinking particularly along Highway 101. How far inland uh, should we be concerned about with regard to homes and businesses? That really varies. You know, people whose homes and businesses are closer to creeks are more at risk because the rising waters will um, move further inland along creeks. And so really looking at basically elevating structures and expanding the setbacks on creeks and floodplains is really important. And then, you know, we also really need to to think hard about um, whether to prohibit new development in areas that we know will be at risk in 30 or 50 years. Mm-hmm. I noticed in one of your reports uh, that I've been looking at, uh, the 100-year floodplain, because of sea level rise, will be much larger than what we think of it as being today. Is that right? Yeah. Everyone who lives here knows that the tides change twice a day, or mm-hmm. well, they change all, all the time. There's two high tides a day. And at certain times of the year, those high tides are really extreme, mostly around the summer solstice and the winter solstice. And so, you know, long before these areas are completely flooded, there's going to be storm damage with these high tides, Um, you know, especially if there's a a storm with winds coming, you know, coming in from the southwest and, you know, very high tide, you can get a lot of storm damage. I also see in your report that, uh, and this is just staggering, $1.4 billion in property replacement value uh, located in what will be, as we just said, an expanded 100-year floodplain. How do we even begin to be able to process that? 
Well, I think one way we really need to start thinking is when we're we're talking about expensive infrastructure um, projects that involve public funding, we really need to be thinking about how we do those kinds of projects, you know, because it seems with each passing decade, less and less public funding for these big infrastructure projects. And so, you know, with, say, for example, the 101 corridor improvement project between Arcata and Eureka, you know, if Caltrans plans to spend $35 million um, making that into a um, an elevated interchange, and then in 30 years, a lot of that area is going to be underwater, or even 50 years, you know, we, we're really wasting limited resources. And uh, planning um, for what we know is coming is really a good idea i was going to ask you about that corridor between arcata and eureka it's right next to the bay what do we do about that well that's a good question and the california coastal commission has tasked caltrans with figuring out a plan that will actually incorporate sea level rise you know one idea that's been kicked around is building a causeway sort of like they did in the willits bypass where you would elevate a big portion of that highway rather than, you know, basically building a mountain out of dirt, which is what they had originally proposed. What are your thoughts on current planning? Are we doing a good job of taking this into account yet or not? Uh, No, we're not really doing a good job of taking this into account at this point. I mean, it's, you know, there's a lot of really difficult decisions that need to be made. You know, not developing in areas that we know are going to be more and more flood prone in the near future, you know, that's a difficult decision for um, elected officials to make. But um, we know the National Flood Insurance Program is, you know, completely broke um, because of all the major storms that we've had in the last decade or so um, in coastal areas. And, um, you know, to continue to rebuild these properties, you know, after storm events, it's not really the smartest thing to do. It's really hard for people to think 30 or 50 years ahead of, um, you know, like how can we even imagine what the what development will be like in 50 years, but we need to try to at least you know, come up with some sort of solutions that aren't going to be just putting people in harm's way. Yeah, you would think it would be our responsibility to be looking forward. And you mentioned money in there. I also wonder about uh, residences and businesses that may have to relocate, which is going to cost money. And as you just said, money is not there. So what do we do at a point where we have people and businesses needing to relocate and maybe their businesses are not worth anything after sea level rise? How do we accomplish all that? Where does the money come from? That's a really good question, especially given, you know, such a small population in a rural area. You know, I don't really see the state or the federal government putting, you know, billions of dollars towards sea level rise adaptation plans in Humboldt Bay. You know, they're going to be putting that money into big cities, you know, San Francisco, Los Angeles. It's my guess that eventually insurance and real estate values will probably drive a lot of this. The, the insurance industry is, has got to start realizing that people who are living in low-lying areas are, are going to be a huge cost to them. So I would imagine that eventually that's going to be part of the driver. 
one thing that Jennifer Kalt does stress is that the time is now to turn our observations and research about climate change into practical public policy responses. To find out how the county is responding to the issues of climate change and what kind of policy we'll be seeing implemented on the local level, we spoke with environmental engineer, former Harbor District Commissioner, and current 3rd District County Supervisor, Mike Wilson. Well, it's an interesting policy question because it's a very slow-moving thing. Even though we can identify it's happening, we know that sea level rise is really a thing. It's happening faster in Humboldt County than other places because Humboldt Bay, is, as a landmass, is subsiding. So it's actually sinking at, at a certain you know, ge- geological rate. It's going down and sea level is rising. So that means that differentials is faster than maybe in other places. So it's something we need to think about. The other thing about that is, you know, unlike many other places in, say, in California, even though, you know, we can make, think our land values are really high, it's certainly not Malibu or other places like that where this discussion can be really painful. You know, people really want to stick their heads in the sand. So we actually can have some more realistic discussions about it. So in general, when we're talking around Humboldt Bay Area, and mostly has to do with the bottoms in the city of Eureka. And even if you think about places like the airport, um, the Murray Field Airport, or Jacobs Avenue, which has all those businesses. And if you drive by at a very high tide, you can see the tide is higher than those businesses already, right? Yeah. And there's these levees that sort of keep those keep the water at bay and around Humboldt Bay. And, and again, the city of Eureka. We have some options as things move forward, and even those options can be flexible and change. And so basically, it's sort of on a spectrum between, you know, build higher levees, it's sort of a defensive spectrum, you know, we're going to defend it, or we're going to retreat, you know, and then strategize how we're going to pull back and let water and ocean expand into those areas, and sort of everything in between. And... The, so we look at not just the infrastructure, right, we're, which is really important to us, um, and whether or not how we keep it or whether we move it, and that is whether it's businesses or homes or Highway 101 or um, the utility lines or the water lines and those sorts of things. I mean, there's all that there's stuff. There's a lot to think about. There's a lot to think about in that, you know, in, in that matrice I suppose of stuff around Humboldt Bay then we also then there's just the ecology part of that too so as sea levels rise how does it impact our um, eelgrass beds where do they move to how does it impact our estuary systems our grazing lands do we keep grazing lands do we convert grazing lands to estuary systems if we convert to estuarine systems maybe we convert to other things that we grow instead of cows maybe we're starting to talk about shellfish or other things in order to maintain uh, protein production uh, in those areas Um, and then it's then it's the timeline part of that so you know, just because when we see a map and it says if sea level rises, it fills in all these areas, well, that's if you do nothing. So then the question is, if you're doing something, what, you know, what do those maps look like? And, and so we have to value all those things. And that's strategic planning is starting now. And there are issues. It's not just about keeping water out. It's also understanding that as sea level rises, so do water tables rise. And so that has an impact on whether or not the the land is arable, even if you raise the levees, right, if you raise sea level rise, then the ability of those 
of those farmlands to drain during storms becomes less. Um, Just the hydrostatic pressure, just the pressure of the ocean water pushing down, push actually then pushes up water somewhere else. And so it can make those um, grazing lands harder um, to grow grass on because maybe they're more wet. And so you might want, people might want to think about changing species of what's grown there or converting into more natural systems and certainly our estuary systems around Humboldt Bay we've lost them you know 150 years ago but all the slough channels and all the areas where all the fish and crabs and all those things that were it's a nursery space for all that stuff and all the surface areas that you find and all the crags of the of those kind of um, and surfaces of those ecosystems create biomass that's where microorganisms attach and that's where all the stuff of life occurs you know it's like the lungs of Humboldt County and so we have to as these things change in these really dynamic systems and we have to account for how we maintain or even possibly grow some of those values so those what we call ecological services so the Humboldt County Board of Supervisors have you been discussing the potential effects of climate change on our community? Well, I've only been on the board for six... Hasn't been very long, huh? (laughs) Yeah, not too long. Six (laughs) months. So this issue directly hasn't really come up, although I think it will in the near future. Um, Certainly there was a lot of discussion about this, about the general plan update part of what's been happening. Um, There was, and I think that that was all couched in the air quality section, so they really mostly put it into that and maybe the energy section. And there's reference to goals related to carbon sequestration or carbon management that's based on statewide goals. Uh, So what I'm really pushing for these days is just passing the general plan update. I um, I have my significant criticisms of, of it in terms of addressing a lot of these issues for sure in terms of the way we plan our communities, but it's still better in a lot of ways, especially on these issues, than the 1984 plan or 85 plan that we're on currently. And we can readdress some of these issues individually after we get this done and and we also need to do the local coastal plan update which tees off of the general plan update so from my perspective um, I, I just want to see it come to a vote as soon as possible you know and and deal with our the issues that divide us on that individually as we move forward in addition to what we'll be experiencing on the coast with sea level rise To our east, inland wildfires are becoming more frequent and stronger than ever. What was once more of a Southern California phenomenon is now on our doorstep. In fact, CAL FIRES had to take notice of this and increase its presence in Central and Northern California to compensate for the northerly movement of wildfire concentration. CAL FIRE Deputy Director Janet Upton spoke with us from her office in Sacramento. Conditions that normally would be found at a more southern latitude or lower uh, elevation are marching northward. And by that I mean uh, fire conditions, wildfire conditions in the past have historically been centered around Southern California, but really since 2008 
that's been flipped on its ear. Uh, a lot of our larger, more damaging fires have occurred in Central California and North. And by this, I mean the Valley Fire in Lake County. Of course, we had the Rim Fire in Yosemite. Um, so these conditions that historically were confined to Southern California, the large damaging fire activity we saw there is now more egalitarian and, uh, and occurring in places other than where it historically had before. Uh, another thing we're noticing is something that Dr. Anthony uh, Westerling out of UC Merced um, started noticing early in the early 2000s, and he was looking into basically the impacts of climate change on wildfire specifically. And he uh, forecasted in his research shows that fire seasons historically, just a finite amount of months, maybe four or five months out of the year, uh, have increased in the last 40 years upwards of, of you know, 78 to 84 days longer. And fire season is now year-round in many parts of, of our state. Could I just ask you a question about that? I mean, we, we normally think of fire season as uh, having a downtime during the rainy season in the wintertime, especially here on the North Coast. But yet we have been hearing of wildfires inland from where we are popping up at times that we're not used to hearing that. So this is something that's happening statewide, well, I guess maybe all over the Western states. Is that right? Your humbled example is perfect. One of the what can be the wettest places on earth. We had a fire that was in excess of 300 acres in Humboldt in the month of January that occurred up in Timber. And that was really uh, put the hair on the back of our, our necks up. I mean, that just doesn't happen in Humboldt in January. Um, so these are the kind of paradigm shifting incidents we're seeing not only in Humboldt but across the state. Longer, hotter fire seasons. Uh, we had places a, a couple of uh, years ago in Tehama County, a 7,000 acre fire in standing timber that occurred in, in a time of year that normally would be under several feet of snow. Um, so these are becoming more commonplace. The, the fire behavior that um, what, what seasoned fire veterans were characterizing as unprecedented. Uh, you know, we started noticing this four or five years ago. We now have to take that word out of our lexicon. What was once unprecedented and is now the new normal, and we've recognized that. And Governor Brown's budget has recognized that. In fact, this most recent budget cycle, we have an additional 42 engines to add at a year-round capacity. That has not happened before. Prior to that, we had a year-round staffing of 10 engines in Southern California only. Now we have a total of 52 across the state exactly to address what we've been discussing. I would assume that increase in equipment like that requires uh, increase in funding. Is the state still in line to keep adding to the funding to make sure that CAL FIRE has the equipment that it needs given the changes that are going on? Yes, this is an addition of approximately $40 million to CAL FIRE's base budget in recognition of now the year-round challenge of climate change, the year-round threat, and with the, on the flip side, uh, investing in forest health during what I don't think we're going to have downtime as much anymore, but certainly there may be slower months in certain parts of the state where we can focus those resources on forest health and creating resiliency because climate change and its effects, I'm afraid, are here to stay. And we can't keep doing business how we had done before. When you say forest health, does that also include maybe uh, in some of the slower times, uh, I guess we can't say downtime anymore, but in some of the slower times, does that mean getting in there and cleaning out some of the fuel and underbrush? That's absolutely what it means. And one of the most important tools to do that, and I struggle as the person in charge of public messaging for CAL FIRE, I struggle with the distinction, you know, having the public understand 
the distinction between good fire and bad fire. And Humboldt is an area that has its act together in terms of prescribed fire. You have the tribal community, you have many other practitioners up there, and they really are setting an example um, for how other areas of the state could use fire, a beneficial intensity fire in the slower times of year to help create a more healthy, resilient forest. So when the large damaging fires happen or when the unusual wintertime several hundred acre fire in Humboldt occurs, we're going to have an easier time to manage it and hopefully keep the impacts of that, the negative impacts in, in check in terms of life, property, and the effects of natural resources. Let me just follow up on that and ask if you can uh, kind of envision our area and some of our inland listeners who may be also seeing longer, hotter summers, more wildfires popping up at odd times of the year. What do individuals who live inland from where we are on the coast, what's your advice to them? Yeah, so California is an amazing state. It's it's just absolutely stunningly beautiful. But, you know, choosing to live here comes with some responsibility. And a lot of responsibility falls on landowner who do live in, in rural um, areas, even suburban areas, um, that they, there's a public resources code law requires clearance of at least 100 feet of defensible space around all structures on the property, so barns, homes, etc. Um, and that's really to give firefighters a fighting chance to help defend those structures when the unwanted, um, you know, large damaging fires occur. So that's probably the most elemental in terms from a survival aspect is to be sure uh, you're performing your defensible space. Um, and that's early spring when we ask people to do that so they're not out using power tools again in the heat of a July or August and, you know, causing a fire. Yeah, I think the sobering statistic is Cal Fire. We've been keeping statistics on large damaging fires across all lands, whether it's local, federal land, or state land in California, since the 1920s. And um, it's really telling that 10 of the state's top 20 largest fires in recorded history have occurred in just the last 10 years. So there's been a significant increase in the occurrence of these really destructive fires, some call them megafires. In the wake of all this discussion about climate change, a local chapter of climate change activist organization 350.org has emerged. We spoke with Katie Gurren. Right now we're asking local governments to pass 100% clean energy resolutions. So cities across the nation, even cities in red states, have already made commitments to clean energy, so transitioning to clean energy by a certain date. And although these uh, clean energy resolutions are non-binding, what they do is they show that there's, there's broad community support for clean energy. And our goal is to influence the RCEA board to start purchasing 100% clean energy by 2025. Right now we're doing a lot of educational events, um, but in the future, what we want to do is actually just meet with local representatives and, uh, and talk to them about our resolution and get them to sign on. Once again, it does appear that California is going to move ahead on its own, regardless of what's going on in Washington. That's one of the things that we found by researching this show. On the local level, many folks are working specifically to address and assess what we will be dealing with in our community as a result of climate change. Many of the experts that we spoke with suggested various online resources, and for those who want to learn more, a link to those sources is provided in the liner notes that accompany this segment up at khum.com. You've been listening to KHUM In-Depth. I'm Chuck Rogers. And I'm Lindsay Battle. We're grateful to our sponsor, Mr. Fish. We'll see you next month. If you or your business would like to become a sponsor of KHUM In-Depth, email advertise at khum.com.